This is the second day of this July 2022 seven-day session, and we'll uh, resume reading from the words of um, Muso Kokshi, the Japanese Zen master of the uh, 13th and 14th century, uh, who was the national teacher, Kokshi, he was the national teacher for appointed by seven successive emperors. And this text is called uh, Dream Conversations, and it's translated by Thomas Cleary. These are just little bite-sized teachings uh, that the translator uh, put in a certain sequence. In the first one, the withholding of divine aid from those who would become presumptuous if their wishes were fulfilled, presumptuous, more attached, more indulgent, and more shameless if their wishes were fulfilled, is itself divine aid to such people. In a corrupt age, when prayers are not answered, that itself is the answer. So again, just a reminder, these are written replies to a certain uh, very important man at the time, the brother of the shogun. Don't ask me exactly what shogun. I read the book uh, before going to Japan uh, at the advice of someone who had lived there a couple of years, I did find it helpful in navigating uh, Japanese, especially Japanese Zen culture. But uh, yeah, some kind of a lord, very high. So when we're when we're praying for those who might pray. Like what uh, someone said, what most people are really asking for when they pray to God is that two and two not make four. But if one were to pray and uh, the prayers went unanswered, um, it would be saying would be suitable if having them answered, you know, having a new car or a new house or winning the lottery, if if winning, if having the prayers answered would make us more uh, more attached to this samsaric world, to the world of the senses, more indulgent, shameless. <clears throat> that is the answer, being denied that because it would uh, cripple us, corrupt us, wouldn't be able to use that. Well, we talked about that yesterday. These uh, hapless lottery winners who are not at all prepared in their terms of their character to manage this vast sums of money. Maybe that's why uh, most lottery winners, by far, are don't win. They're denied it because it would uh, overturn their lives in the worst kind of way.
And next is, uh, he says, the pity that great sages have for ordinary people is not necessarily because of the wretchedness of the human condition in itself, but more because of the great potential humanity has and does not use, the highest state from which humanity has fallen. leave that without comment. Next one, the central benefit of Zen in the context of the ordinary ups and downs of life is not in preventing the minus and promoting the plus, but in directing people to the fundamental reality that is not under the sway of ups and downs. This is where... uh, Sashin is a real proving ground because everyone has their ups and downs in Sashin, just as in life. Sashin is life. Sashin is just a sort of condensed form of life where we can go up and down in much shorter time than outside uh, outside Sashin in our regular life and to flights of euphoria and joy and uh, the depths of discouragement and despondency. Uh, that's Sashin. Don't think there's anything right or wrong when you go through these states of mind. And what we find if we persist, and most people do persist, uh, is we find that uh, we can reach that which is beyond the ups and downs that which is beyond change. This is a huge reward to get to the point where we don't take the ups and downs, the fortunes and the misfortunes as seriously. Huge, huge asset in life. It's called detachment. So it's half of Sashin is just learning that it'll pass, whatever it is. I've considered uh, setting up uh, in the Doksan room a, a laptop uh, with just on the face of it just saying, it will pass. And I'd probably help a lot of people that way, even if I'm not in the, in the Doksan room. These things we know intellectually. Everyone says, okay, of course, yeah, 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 I get it. With these states of mind pass. Yeah, I get it. But until we really get it in our bodies, that is, until we really confirm it uh, in... Um, our non-reactivity in our bodies, then we don't really know it. It's, it's, it's hard-earned. It takes time. In the next passage, he 
talks about uh, three kinds of um, three three ways in which virtue without wisdom uh, is an enemy, to use his word. So here are the three. Uh, I'll, so I'll paraphrase a little bit. Um, when you're doing only contaminated good, that is, uh, when you're exercising virtue simply in hopes of reward, um, this is time lost. It's, it's wasted time. And uh, the time that could have been uh, used to clarify the true ground of mind, the fundamental, for, for spending time uh, doing good deeds in order to get something back. The second problem with contaminated virtue uh, is that pleasurable states eventually develop, he says. That is, we, we uh, acquire good karma, let's call it that. We acquire good karma from it, even though it's contaminated. Uh, and uh, it says, still in the realm of emotion, these, these pleasurable states cause a deepening of mundane attachments. So, uh, let's say lottery winners. It makes sense to me that the, uh, an expert on the, the doctrine of karma would say that lottery winners uh, have done a lot of good deeds in their past lives, if not this, this life. Uh, but then um, this can become uh, really problematic and uh, just um, stoke uh, an appetite for for possessions and things. This, so there it is, the enemy of the second lifetime. That's, that's the phrase he uses. Virtue without wisdom is said to be an enemy for three lifetimes. And the third is uh, when, when the pleasurable states are worn out, that's it, is when we've exhausted our good karma uh, from squandering it, misusing it. Um, we're still not any wiser, uh, but now we're, we're habituated to our attachments. And so we fall. This is uh, rather neatly um, structured in what in what Buddhism calls the six realms of unenlightened existence, in which we can uh, ascend and descend depending on our our actions and words. Uh, we can ascend even without any uh, awakening because of these these good deeds and then but then it's always a state of insecurity we can understand that to mean those of us who who do live in fortunate circumstances where we're well off we're well fed we're well clothed we have uh, all the comforts creature comforts and possessions and a comfortable life uh, there's no security in that we're still uh, working off 
working on the basis of good good karma, but uh, it's not an inexhaustible reservoir we have. This idea of uh, contaminated virtue, doing things in the hope of uh, acquiring merit. Merit is would be the Buddhist word. Uh, I don't see it much in our sangha, uh, or maybe in, the, in our, our country, uh, our very distinctly non-Buddhist country. I think what I do see and uh, recognize in myself is uh, wanting to do good things uh, to feel better about oneself, to, to, to acquire more self-esteem, to improve one's self-image, and the image in the, in the eyes of others. This is, this, we have to imagine uh, that uh, short, of, short of full enlightenment, that there's always some um, contamination in what we, the good things we do, the so-called good things we do, because we're, we're, getting, we're getting self-gratification out of it. Someone, uh, well, I don't know, uh, adopt a foster child. Uh, are we to think that 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 those foster parents aren't having a boosted sense of self-esteem, that not at all, not even a shred. They may tell themselves that they're uh, very good people and, and by and large, in normal, normal measures, that, yeah, we would certainly say that's true, but it's always, I think, to be honest, there's always some uh, kind of contamination some impurity involved there to the extent that there's the self self interest behind it and then you can just apply that to a million things uh, work social work um, all kinds of, of uh, um, yeah work work in the, in the, for good causes by and large it may be what we need we need those things done but Hmm, look, look closely. How much is there? The how much is it done in order to feel better about oneself? Relieve maybe feelings of guilt, which would be a stronger uh, factor in a in a Judeo-Christian uh, country. Guilt uh, and to appear good in the eyes of others. I think this is much more. Uh, the danger uh, then building up uh, although yeah I guess in in, uh, in Christianity there is this strong idea of yeah having just attended uh, two massive Catholic funerals I was reminded of how much uh, uh, good deeds are done in order to buy one's way into heaven Uh, to, to, to be fair, who, who can wait? Um, who can wait to engage in social action and helping others? Who can wait until we're absolutely pure? What is that? What's absolute purity? I guess that's, I guess 
that's supreme perfect enlightenment. So we go in knowing in our activities that there is an element of impurity to it, of self, uh, self-gratification, uh, but then at least to be wise to ourselves, no, no, notice it, uh, be aware that, that we're not uh, saints. And then he's continuing here in the same theme, the very um, complex nature of of good and bad. He says, one may enter into this, the sphere of influence of demons as a result of spiritual exercises and experiences. Demons, for those of you who can't make this obvious translation, it's just an, a medieval way of understanding uh, troublesome states of mind. Let's just leave it at that. One may enter into the sphere of influence of demons as a result of spiritual exercises and experiences. This may be likened to the case of a warrior who is rewarded for achievement in battle, then develops an exaggerated sense of self-importance as a result of that reward, eventually to be punished for presumptuous behavior. This... uh, uh, calls to mind the story in yesterday in the translator's introduction about how uh, this Mongol invasion of of Japan was thwarted not only by the kamikaze this, but also by this, these, these heroic efforts of these warriors who then had to be rewarded uh, in a monetary way and when they weren't then uh, they took a burn to it. He continues, when a person takes pride in spiritual practices, there it is, pride. When a person takes pride in spiritual practices or experiences, that individual is certain to fall into the sphere of influence of demons. This is not the fault of the practice itself, but of the attitude of the practitioner. Those who undertake spiritual practices with wrong ideas or develop wrong views in the course of practice, and those who become conceited and oppose the doctrines or methods of others, enter states of mind and modes of being that may be referred to as hell. Well, speaking of pretty uh, extreme, he's speaking in extreme terms here. But again, a warning. Pride is always lurking. And whatever, whatever progress we make in spiritual practice in Zen, uh, there's always the, the threat of pride coming along with it, which it also contaminates whatever progress there is. And we can have such subtle forms of pride. Uh, it's another reason to come to Sashin as often as possible because uh, it's in Sashin that we're most likely to unmask these ever more subtle forms of pride.
And pride doesn't isn't only from having what one would think of as success in practice. It's also failure. One can acquire a sense of specialness by how long one has gone without achieving what one wants to achieve. The word ego, I think, is so often overused, but um, this is for a minute. Use it. Uh, there, there's basically two kinds of ego. The ego of thinking one is better than others, and but then there's also it's also egotistical to think of oneself as worse than others. The point is, ego means somehow basically different from, in a in a fundamental way. Other people can do this. Other people can uh, get through a sashin. Other people can come to awakening. But me, emphasis on the me, me, nah, I don't have it. I, I, me. There's the ego. Musso continues, a sutra called Obstacles of Pure Action explains how religious practices can in fact obstruct the path of enlightenment. This occurs, and now what he does is he runs through these what are called the six paramitas. Uh, the six par- paramitas are uh, giving or, or charity, that's one, Second is morality. Third is forbearance or patience. The fourth is uh, vigor or zeal. Fifth is um, concentration. And the sixth is uh, wisdom. So here's how he spells it out. We get in trouble when those who practice almsgiving, that is, charity, giving, generosity, despise the selfish. Hmm. There's another, another of the many flavors of pride. Look how, look how generous I am. And oh, what is wrong with those people who can't be as generous? Second, when those who uphold the moral precepts are critical of those who do not. Third, when those who practice forbearance, patience, belittle the impatient. Fourth, when those who practice vigorous, vigorous diligence look down on the indolent and the lazy. So that could play out in Sashin too. Look how much I'm sitting during late night, how much late night sitting I'm doing, sitting during the breaks. And look at those others. Fifth, when those who practice meditation reject the distracted, in other words, finding, making odious comparisons of how uh, the ordinary people are so distracted compared to those of us who meditate. And then the last one, uh, when those, those with uh, knowledge make light of the ignorant. I think I, I, I find fault with Cleary for... And too often uh, translating wisdom as knowledge, I think it makes more sense 
uh, to say when those who have acquired some wisdom have, have uncovered, let's call it the way we should call it, it's not acquiring anything, it's uncovering our innate wisdom, make light of those who haven't. And then he just sums it up. Acquisitiveness in the practitioner converts religious practice into self-approval and condemnation of others, which obstructs the course of enlightenment, ultimate enlightenment. I wonder how many of those of you hearing this um, really need to be really need to hear it. That is, uh, I, I have a sense that uh, those who practice Zen seriously and anyone who comes to Sashin practices Zen seriously um, know this stuff, uh, are onto these dangers. But if uh, this great national teacher felt he could, he needed to uh, spell it out, then I'm going to go along with him. I guess it can't help to be reminded of these things. And also, in these books of these, these masters, uh, it's, it's helpful to keep in mind that it, it, it was no doubt tailored to the recipient. I mean, in this case, in, in many cases, it's, it's the monks. The masters are talking to all the monks. Uh, but here, it's one in particular, this uh, shogun's younger brother. So uh, maybe that's why... Some of these uh, points he's making are ones that we uh, assure ourselves we already know. There's some more pride. Here he's back to demonic states, things that... uh, obstruct or or, uh, afflict the mind in one way or another. He says, aversion or fear of demonic states is itself a demonic state. If you have emotional attachment to the appearances of Buddhahood, enlightenment, then it is actually a demonic state. If you are unconcerned by the appearances of demonic states, then they are the realm of Buddhahood. So here to uh, give an example, uh, the the three pillars of Zen has been credited uh, justifiably with with uh, having brought thousands of people to practice, and many of them it's because of reading of the Enlightenment accounts. It sure was for me. In uh, the the meetings of the AZTA, American Zen Teachers Association, uh, I've been maybe not so surprised, but uh, struck by how many of the teachers uh, say that that's how they got. That's what inspired them to undertake practice seriously: is reading the Three Pillars of Zen and the Enlightenment accounts. But then again, the danger of getting attached to those accounts. And having that, those awakening experiences getting lodged in the mind, then it becomes a real impediment. 
it's enough to to have have those accounts or any awakening accounts inspire us and we got to forget them I lost precious time in Sashin's working on my first koan mu uh, relating what I was going through to those accounts comparing and contrasting Just this last sentence, if you are unconcerned by the appearances of demonic states, then they are the realm of Buddhahood. So let's take as an example, uh, makyo, hallucinations or other strange states that arise uh, during during practice. Uh, we can reach the point where uh, it doesn't matter if we have lions and tigers on the wall in front of us or, or uh, other dramatic uh, hallucinations uh, we just see them for what they are just devoid of any substance having no roots just a, a little trick of the mind and and then at the same time see them as no other than this our own original mind and that's a segue, uh, unintentional, to the next one. Here, the next entry. A primary aim of Zen is the uncovering of what is known as inherent knowledge. So here, this is what I mean. This, this, translating it as knowledge. Knowledge is learning things. Uh, he's, I'm certain. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say what he means is our, our innate wisdom the uncovering of what is known as uh, Bodhi wisdom, what's called, inherent wisdom. And then he says, this is not the kind of knowledge that is produced by thinking based on conditioned consciousness. It is said that the ignorant are obstructed by ignorance, while intellectuals are obstructed by intellectual knowledge. That's a a pregnant statement. Uh, intellectuals are obstructed by intellectual knowledge. People uh, who are given to conceptualizing, just generally in their life, uh, will carry that into into Sashin and um, complicate things. Remember Roshi Kaplow quoting Harada Roshi in Japan as saying it's it's easier for women to have a first breakthrough uh, because uh, men are more likely to be playing with ideas, concepts. I don't I don't know if that's true, but what's true is the degree that we are conceptualizing anything about our practice, uh, then we're 
holding ourselves back. And then he, he concludes, one way of getting past these obstacles and approaching inherent wisdom is to let go of whatever comes to mind. There it is. Let go of whatever comes to mind. Thoughts, fantasies, feelings and emotions also. What, 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 would be, what would we gain from holding on to them? And what does that mean anyway? It means thinking about them. Feelings and emotions are part of being human. That's part of our nature. So we will always at times have feelings and emotions, but we don't need, we don't need to. We certainly don't need to suppress them, but why would we want to hold on to them? short one here, the fundamental, of course he's talking about our true nature, the essential, the fundamental is not characterized by intelligence or stupidity in the ordinary sense. Those who are attached to such appearances are the stupid, while those who are not are the intelligent. So he's giving a, a different definition of intelligence, something far beyond IQ. If we're attached to uh, ideas of, of in- intelligence, then, then we're stupid. So those who attain understanding of the fundamental do not pride themselves in being wise. Yeah, we, just, we just covered that a little while ago. Here's an antidote to uh, acquiring some degree of wisdom is to ask, well, who? Who is wise? What is it that's wise? And you're not going to find anyone. Anyone fixed, permanent. Here's a little bit longer one. When you're ill, if you think you have to study medical science before getting treatment for your illness, you will get sicker and die before you ever finish learning medicine. If you go to an expert physician, however, the physician can diagnose your ailment and prescribe accordingly. As a patient, you may not understand the knowledge underlying the doctor's prescription but if you follow expert advice, you will get well. You can see this is a metaphor for working with a teacher. Buddhist practice is also like this. If you try to learn all the doctrines first and then apply them, you might spend a whole lifetime studying the doctrines without learning them all. So many and diverse are they. 
if you never get around to applying them, then learning is ultimately useless. Real teachers, therefore, give students only as much instruction as they need to apply. Even if the students cannot understand immediately, if they keep the directions of the teacher in mind without trying to fit them into preconceived interpretations, the obscurity should dissolve when the appropriate time arrives. It speaks to the utter utter practicality of Zen. One of the most famous succinct statements the Buddha ever made was, I teach but two things, suffering and the end of suffering. It's all about how can we end, at least minimize, reduce our suffering and the suffering of others. That's it. And there, there are people, probably in any Buddhist Sangha, uh, who are more drawn to study. They want to study Buddhist doctrine. Um, and they're in good company, actually, because... Uh, some of the most illustrious of the Zen masters started by uh, studying the sutras before getting into practice. The danger it always is to make this, the reading, the study, a substitute for the real thing. I have, frankly, mixed feelings about... Um, Buddhist study groups, um, very, very different feelings. I, I, I endorse people learning more about this magnificent tradition, this wisdom tradition, and being, being more, being less ignorant about Buddhist doctrine, uh, so long as it doesn't become a substitute for the for the simple practice of zazen simple two step process step number 1 noticing when the mind has wandered step 2 redirecting bringing the attention back to the practice awfully simple let me repeat because it can't hurt in, in Sashin especially. Noticing, first comes the noticing. That's the hard part because we can't notice till we notice. Noticing when the mind has wandered. And then the second one is bringing the mind back to the practice. The problem comes that sometimes even after noticing, the sitter wants to linger there in whatever thoughts or dreams they, they discover. The longer you linger in the thoughts, the fantasies and so forth, uh, the more you'll be obstructed. It's a, it's a gradual dawning that occurs through long Zen practice when you realize that 
Thoughts are not our friends. Fantasies are not our friends. Both of them, thoughts and fantasies, can provide momentary pleasure of sorts, escape maybe, but we lose time, precious time, when we linger in these things. And, and to reach the point where you finally get it, that you're not going to spend any time with your thoughts, you still do some because you can't help it, but, but at least to have the clarity, the commitment to not stay there any longer than you, than you, ha- you have to, uh, this is where things really get rolling. Breakthroughs can happen. But there has to be that conviction that it's not in thoughts. There's a great uh, Chinese master, Fa Yan, who, sa- who sim- said simply, it does not enter through thought. But most of us take forever to learn that. Way too long. Because we're so... So we're so habituated to playing with our thoughts, thinking that uh, there's something essential that we can get out of them. Yes, we can. There are things we can derive from uh, reflection, thoughtful reflection, uh, but but they won't solve the matter of life and death. comes down to what do you want? Do you want to enjoy sort of um, pleasurable in little insights, philosophical or psychological insights? Do you want to hang out there or do you want to see through it all and get to the bottom, the bottomless bottom, the fundamental? This Bodhi mind. What do you want? What do you really want? Another way that plays out is is, this, is that for for many of us for a while, just the the deep peace of being in Sashin is enough. It's just so luscious, especially people with very busy, busy lives, stressful lives. You come in, you spend two, three, four days, everything settles, and it, the world comes alive, sounds, especially in this environment, the natural sounds of birds, the insects, the wind in the trees, it can be very seductive. But don't settle for that. You may settle for it, for three or five or ten sashins, but then comes a point where you reach, get in touch with what is deeper, what your deepest longings are, and that's when things can turn. Time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows.